The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So, of course, it's not every year that July 4th falls on Sunday, and so I was really praying about passage for a day like this, and uh, I was praying between Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, and I believe the Spirit inclined me to 1 Peter 2. So if you'll turn to 1 Peter 2 in your Bible, Romans 13 was a very important foundational text, but we'll be in 1 Peter 2 this morning. We'll return to Matthew, Lord willing, next Sunday, but today, on July 4th, we'll look at Christians and government from 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me give a flyover of what the Bible says about governance. Don't forget, God created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) He created all things. He created all people, and it was good. And when authority was perfect, humans rejected perfect authority. We once walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, but even that was not enough. And so we rebelled against our creator in Adam and Eve. We spurned God's good presence and authority. And if you know the rest of the biblical story, things got bad very quickly, didn't they? How long did it take for murder to happen? The very first children, right? And then things are so bad in Genesis 6 that twice in the chapter, God says that man's thoughts were continually evil and there was violence covering the world. Man's thoughts were continuously evil and violence covered the world. And God, in righteous wrath, sent a flood. In mercy, he provided an opportunity to escape judgment on the ark, but few took him up on it. Now, after the flood, you would think things would improve, but of course they don't. And so in Genesis 9, we see God institute human authority to protect humans from one another. Now that authority is then moved to a national covenant, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15. And then God provides a king. Don't forget the Israelites wanted a king like the nations. And so originally they got Saul. And then they got David. And David was probably the high water mark, but you know the story of David well enough to know that even David failed in his governance. And really, the rest of the Old Testament is a record of the descent of human governance getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, we've been going through Matthew on Sunday mornings, and so you know from the Gospel of Matthew, the good news is revealed. The perfect king comes. But not to give away what we're going to preach over the next several months, but even the perfect king is rejected and crucified by those he came to serve. So his righteous rule, his perfect kingdom, is delayed, at least in part. And in the book of Acts, when the apostles say, is now the time for your kingdom to be fully established? He says, no, now is the time for you to be witnesses. And so when we come to 1 Peter, we now come to the same stage that we are in as well. We are now the church in a secular governance Our citizenship is not of this world. Our kingdom is not of this world. Our king is not yet ruling on this world. And yet we are called to live in this world as light. So here we are in 1 Peter 2, and the title is Christians and Government. If you have the notes uh, online or if you found the bulletin, I really just unpack the passage. To help you stay invested and to help me be clear as a communicator, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to first just break down 1 Peter 2. 
And then I think you'll have many objections percolating in your mind. (laughs) And I'll do my best to address some of those objections and then lead to the ultimate solution at the end. First though, let's unpack the text and see what God has to say. So look with me in 1 Peter 2. Let's begin in verse 13. 1 Peter 2 verse 13, and the first words we read are be subject, be subject. And as we continue, we read that we're to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil. So be subject is the first verb. Some translations write submit, which is not very helpful because it's actually a passive verb. So be subject gets at it a little bit better. To explain the difference, this is a command. This is an imperative. When in the Bible you read a command, you don't want to confuse it with a statement of fact. For example, if you read a poll and you're reading a newspaper and it says 60% of Americans like oranges, that's just a declaration. You don't have to do anything with that. But if you're driving and you see flashing lights behind you and you hear over the loudspeaker, pull over, that's a command, that's an imperative. Note here that this is a command from God to us. He is not suggesting or declaring something. God is commanding to us, we must be subject. Now, you could at this point think, well, maybe subject just means submit or respect, but it also includes the idea of obedience. Thomas Schreiner, a Greek scholar, writes this, though some scholars try to restrict submit to respect or deference, lexically it is impossible to wash the concept of obedience out of submit. So the Bible here, God has given us a command. Christians, we must, with exceptions that I will hint at later, but generally, we must be inclined to obey and submit to our God-ordained legitimate human authority figures. Now, let me bring it out again that the verb is passive. It's in the passive voice, meaning it's not strength that we find within. There is something outside of us that compels us to be subject. Do you see it in the text, the very next phrase, be subject for the Lord's sake. That means that there's something about our Lord and King Jesus that he has shown us that can enable us to be subject. There is something about God's ordination and his determinative will to set up human authority that can enable us to be subject. God in his sovereign wisdom has ordained human authority. As our brother just read from Romans 13, there is actually no authority except that which is from God. And so for the Lord's sake, our Lord Jesus and his creative wisdom, we can and indeed must be subject. R.C. Sproul, I think, is worth quoting here. He writes, This means if I show no respect to a person whom God has set in authority between himself and me, my disrespect carries beyond that person and ultimately lands on God as the giver of that authority. All authority in the Bible is hierarchical. At the top of the hierarchy is God. All authority in human institutions is delegated by God, and any authority I have in my life is a derived and appointed authority. It is not intrinsic, but extrinsic. And always, if we buck against legitimate God-ordained authority, we are indeed rejecting God himself as authoritative. Now, the realm of authority that the Bible tells us to be subject to continues in verse 13. 
This would be letter B on your handout. Be subject to all God-ordained human authority. Notice the verse says, to every human institution, whether it be emperor as supreme or governors sent by him. All legitimate God-ordained human authority we should be inclined to obey as believers. In fact, Christians should be known for our willingness to submit to human authority in all legitimate forms. This week on the Gospel Coalition's website, I read the best article on modesty I've ever read in my life. It was written by Megan Hill. Now the point of her article was on modesty. But near the end of it, she talked about how modesty is actually an opportunity to reveal our heart towards authority. And she wrote this. We are people under authority to every legitimate authority God has established. And so we should even dress as people under authority. A parent's rule about particular outfits, the dress code at school or camp, guidelines at the pool or the workplace, no matter how arbitrary they may seem, were given by authority. She concludes, we throw off such rule at the peril of our souls. We must joyfully submit to them under the Lord. She's right to put her finger on this point. Our view of legitimate human authority actually reveals our heart towards God himself. Now, lest we worship human authority and commit hagiography, let me point out the Greek here. The English translation writes every human institution, but you know what the Greek actually is? Every human creature. It's important to get that right because that means even these people in positions of human authority are actually just creatures created by the ultimate authority. Remember that only God the creator deserves all glory, honor, and power. So be subject, be subject for the Lord's sake, be subject to all legitimate God-ordained authority, but now let her see. Be subject because God does have a purpose for government. Let's continue reading here, verse 14. God's purpose for all human authority is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Is this not an amazing summary of God's intention for human authority? It's my favorite in all of the Bible. Romans 13 will say it much more broadly as our brother just read, that they're to punish those who do bad. They're to promote what is good. They do not bear the sword in vain. But here in Peter, it's just summarized in these two Ps. Punish evil, praise good. Punish evil, praise good. Now I think there's an objection here that I'll go ahead and address at this moment. Good and evil, according to whom? Good and evil, according to whom? In our cultural moment, maybe more than any other time, we have to address this question because we now live in a moment where people actually believe that you can conjure up your own morality and devise your own moral framework to determine your own version of what is good and what is evil. Let me answer that with a few answers to that objection. First, I would argue this morning that without God, we have no rationally compelling reason to live any way at all. A couple weeks ago, I was reading the Russian philosopher Vladimir Solovyov, and he put the matter sarcastically. I love the sentence. Here's what he said. Men descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. <laughs> it makes no sense, does it? The second clause doesn't follow the first. So I don't mean to be unduly harsh in what I'm about to say, but I just want to help us think. You can slap kindness matters 
on the bumper of your car or in a sign in your yard or above your kitchen sink. But if you don't have a creator who made humans in his image and humans who will live eternally with lives that matter, you have no rationally compelling reason to live kind at all, nor do you have any rational restrictions to define what kindness is. So we have to point out that these slogans becoming popular in our culture actually won't admit the source they're citing it from. (laughs) And without properly citing that source, you'll eventually lose the kindness because we won't have the parameters to keep it. Jacques Derrida wrote, today the cornerstone of international law is the sacredness of man as your neighbor made by God. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept. And I think there'd be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage, the Abrahamic heritage, and the biblical heritage. I'll quote one more philosopher, Jürgen Habermas concurs adding this. The modern ideals of freedom, conscience, human rights, and democracy actually come from the Bible's teaching on justice and love so that secular society has found no good alternative way to ground these ideals. Let me put it in my own words. You can only punish evil as evil and promote good as good if you know what evil is and good is, and you can only know what evil is and good is if you know the transcendent creator in whom the moral categories are fixed. There is no other way they can be known. If you reject the origin of these values, you will eventually lose the values. Let me go a little further. Our perceived common cultural moment right now where we say we can come to our own individualized morality, which we commonly use with the word justice. Have have, have you noticed this? When people say justice now, they're using that term as a catch-all framework for how to live. They're not actually talking about justice anymore. They're not talking about an entire worldview of life. So when someone says justice, I hate to tell you this so bluntly, (laughs) but our pursuits of justice are much more self-centered than we might care to admit. Uh, Luke Ferry says it this way, a common motivation to be just in today's American culture is a feeling of satisfaction and superiority when we contrast ourselves to illiberal societies. If our motivation for justice is self-satisfaction and superiority, What a fragile shifting sand we are building on. Furthermore, I don't know if you've observed what I'm about to say, but actually the cries for justice in the main, not always, but in the main, are actually coming from a place of anger. Have you noticed that some of the calls for justice, which may be angry at things that are legitimately evil, but they very quickly turn to tribalism and rancor at our new demonized opponents. Have you observed that as well? See, our pursuit of justice is no longer a biblical pursuit of justice, but when it becomes individualized morality, then it always becomes tribal and rancorous. Let me give a third critique to the idea that we could come to justice individually. Let me point out that our individualized truth is actually much more societally conditioned than we may be aware. When people say, come to your own truth, come to your own truth, have you ever noticed that the people who tell you you need to come to your own truth don't give you a blank check to cash? When they tell you come to your own truth, 
they then give you a few options that you're allowed to pick from that always behoove the people in positions of power. Let me give an example from Tim Keller. Tim Keller gives an example of an AD 800 Anglo-Saxon warrior. All right, so imagine you're an Anglo-Saxon warrior in 800 AD and you have two strong impulses inside of you. The first is to aggressively murder people. You love smashing people with your bare hands and squeezing the life out of them. The second impulse you have is same-sex attraction. In AD 800, which of those two do you think the Anglo-Saxon warrior will say, this is the true me, this is who I really am? It will be squeezing the life out of people with his bare hands. Now today, if that same man lived in Manhattan, New York, with the same two urges, the urge to squeeze the life out of people with his bare hands and same-sex attraction, which of the two do you think he'll tell himself, this is the true me, this is who I really am, and which of the two do you think he'll go to therapy to try to get it squelched? You see, the things that we think are our true self are actually societal multiple choice options we're given that when you choose them, help the people in positions of power to gain more power. So if we think we're actually gaining individuality, we've been deceived by the best advertising ploy maybe in human history. (laughs) Now furthermore, deep down, everybody knows that morality cannot be individually conjured. Let me prove that to you quickly. Every human thinks that someone somewhere else is doing something they shouldn't be doing. Every human thinks that someone somewhere else is doing something they shouldn't be doing. But on what grounds could you ever oblige someone to stop doing something unless there is a transcendent and fixed good and evil? If you think women should be treated humanely, how could you tell someone in another hemisphere and in a culture that predates ours that they need to treat women humanely unless the treatment of women is fixed in the image of God himself. You see? Unless morality is fixed, and if it goes back to a creator, there is no way we could ever argue that anything is right or wrong. So when I ask the question, punish good and promote evil, good and evil according to whom? The answer, God. There is no other option. In fact, the Bible wouldn't even conceive of one. There is only one good and one evil. Let me give you some examples from the Bible then that God says, these are things I want government to punish and these are things I want government to promote. Genesis 9 verse six, I wonder if you've ever thought about that verse. Here's what it says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. The text is saying because God is the creator and God knows what's good, God has given humans the authority to punish what God sees as evil. So murder is punishable because God deems it evil. On the positive side, government is to promote the worship of God. Government is to promote God's design for the family. Government is to promote true justice, benevolence, and human dignity. Job Psalms, Proverbs say much about human dignity and setting aside our rights in love for the poor. James 2 verses 14 through 17 says, if you've received the grace of God through faith, how could you have no compassion for the poor? In fact, it is the biblical foundation that gives us any sense 
of a compelling motivation that is not self-centered for us to serve others for the common good. So let me remind us then that God has made government as his servant to promote what God calls good and to punish what God calls evil. Now, no doubt, sometimes government and human authorities get that wrong and we wanna do the best we can to help them get it right. But overall, remember that government is an ordained blessing from God. And when they are generally getting it right, we should not want to defund them or subvert them because they are a gift from God to promote the kind of culture that God ordains is right. So God has a good purpose for government. But indeed, even when government doesn't quite get it right, notice how God wants us to respond. So look in verse 15. Subject yourself to God-ordained human authority. Why? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Ignorance here is culpable ignorance. And foolish does not mean that people are intellectually dumb, but they are morally debased. In the Bible, foolishness is not a mental failure, but a moral failure. Now, you might be thinking right now, but if I do good and the government calls it evil, how will I ever put to silence people's complaints? I mean, didn't they crucify Jesus even though he lived perfectly? Look above in verse 11 and 12 with me right now, if you would, in 1 Peter 2. So look up to verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. So notice they will still falsely accuse you even if you do right. But they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, by living lives of godliness and dignity, and Christian integrity, we won't silence every complaint that someone could make, but we'll show that those complaints don't have the credibility that they assert, and it will cause the malicious slander to be mitigated to some degree now, but in full on the final day of visitation. This scripture then reminds us, Christians, that God is glorified when we willfully subject ourselves with godly integrity even to flawed and corrupt human authorities. In doing so, we show the character of our God and show the goodness of his good plan. Let me then point out this as Christians. Is it not a horrible thing when we read the news and some alleged Christian has actually been living a very evil life? Does that not malign the character of our Lord? This is exactly what Peter is telling us to avoid. Because we know that even people who are not Christians can live well. We understand that. But Christians have the most compelling and sustainable motivation to live good lives. Should we not be most known for good lives in the public square? D.A. Carson writes, Behavior stamped by courtesy, respect, and integrity is not itself preaching the gospel, but it wins a hearing for the gospel, simultaneously preparing a way for it and authorizing it. So live good lives so that people can see the glory of God through them. Now verse 16, live as people who are free. Probably most of you have a translation that translates live. The ESV does, the NIV does. But the word live is not in the text anywhere. The only verb from verses 13 to 16 is the first one, verse 13, be subject. 
So the English translations are trying to fill in the thought. The CSB does the best because it just rewrites the word submit. But understand that he's still talking about how we subject ourselves. We're to subject ourselves to human authorities though we are actually free. Have you ever heard people in America complain about their rights? I have these rights, I have these rights. And rights quickly become weaponized as a way to pursue selfish desires. In verse 16, though, we read, live as people who are free. Notice, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See, as Christians, we're not to use our freedom for selfishness, but for service. Not as freedom so that we can cover up evil, but so that we can serve God. When Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate in John 19, 11, Jesus said this, you have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has committed the greater sin. And yet Jesus willingly served God, even though the human authority was wrong. In this text, we're reminded that we're not to use rights for self, but to use rights for service. And now in verse 17, we finally have imperatives again, and there are four of them, four commands. Verse 17, honor everyone, and then at the end of the verse, honor the emperor. Some translations use two different words, but it's the word honor in Greek for both, tomao. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's look at each. Notice honor everyone and honor the emperor are given the same Greek word and the same force. We're to honor and respect every person as Christians and we're to honor and respect the office of governance, regardless of who's in it. But more than that, we're to love the brotherhood. So now, would you look up in verse nine and 10 now, First Peter two. Notice the description of the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Verse nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let us remember, brothers and sisters, that our core identity is not a political party, but as the people of God. Our core identity is our family, our brotherhood and sisterhood. We're to honor everyone, but we love our brothers and sisters in a unique way. And our honor for everyone and our honor even for those in human authority falls short of the fourth imperative in verse 17, which is fear God. No man is to be feared. Only God deserves this status. God ordains humans in positions of authority. But human leaders could never be our hope because human leaders could never change our heart and could never make us right with our creator. Human leaders then in their best years of work could never accomplish what our fundamental need is. All right, I've left a question hanging the whole time and you've probably been thinking of it. Josh, what do we do then? If government messes up what is good and what is evil? (laughs) What if they promote things that are actually evil in God's sight? And what if they punish things that are actually good in God's sight? Well, if you downloaded my notes from the website, I came up with six. If you didn't download them, let's see how quickly you can write. (laughs) So here are six answers that I've given this morning, knowing that of course I can't say everything. I told my wife last night, she said, how many pages did you write for Sunday? And I said, 112, but I cut it down to 30. (laughs) 
All right, so here are the six that I've cut it down to. Letter A or, or number one. Remember this. God will judge everyone ultimately. So when our human authorities get it wrong, remember that no authority is higher than God and he will bring everybody into account. I love Psalm 22, verse 28. Kingship belongs to the Lord. The Lord rules over the nations. Daniel chapter two. Blessed be the name of our God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Remember, God is the ultimate authority. Letter B. When our human authority gets it wrong, we must prophetically speak about the fact that they've gotten it wrong. The Bible does this repeatedly. Remember, we just saw recently in Matthew, John the Baptist calling out Herod for the fact that Herod's living in sin. What Herod has declared as legal, John calls unlawful. Think of Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar in this, chapter four, verse 27, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins and practice righteousness. Or think of all of the prophets in the Old Testament that not only condemn the Israelite authorities, but the nations. Isaiah 40, or sorry, Isaiah 10 says this, woe to all those who decree iniquitous decrees. So brothers and sisters, in the right way, we must prophetically call out evil in high places, no matter who it is that's doing it. Letter C or number three, Christians must shine. Have you ever thought about the implications of Jesus telling us to shine? If we're gonna shine, that means the world is what? Dark. Why are we surprised then when our leaders are corrupt? In order for us to shine, we would expect normally that they are. Over the years when I've preached on passages about submitting ourselves to governmental authority, normally someone will come up to me after the sermon, and I love conversations after the sermon, but they'll come up to me and they'll say, Josh, We can't submit or honor these people because you don't understand how bad they are. To which I normally say, let me tell you about the first century. So let me do that with you right now. In first century Rome, homosexuality was acceptable, common among males, and was legal. In first century Rome, abortion was practiced widely and was much more barbaric even than it is for us. Rome was so so promiscuous that it's been called by historians a pornocracy. Slavery was rampant in Rome. Now, it wasn't chattel or race-based slavery, but it was rampant so that two-thirds of humans were normally in slavery. Fifth, violence was glamorized in gladiatorial fights. Further, Christians were brutally and publicly executed. There was no freedom of speech and no freedom of religion or worship. There was an immense disparity between the rich and the poor in socioeconomic status, and emperors were often unabashed despots. Now, my dad's family emigrated to the United States from Italy. And so when I was in school, I thought, oh man, I so relate to being a Roman. I love the Roman Empire until I actually read about the Roman emperors. (laughs) Now, don't forget in verse 17, what Peter said, we're to honor the emperor. Do you want to know what emperors he was talking about that he actually faced? He in the first century church? Let me tell you the emperors that were in his lifetime. First, he had Caligula in AD 37 to 41. Caligula had uh, declared himself a god while he was living and demanded that everyone worship his horse as a god as well. Claudius was 41 to 54. Claudius executed his own wife, expelled the Jews from Rome. 
hated Christians, and then was killed by his second wife, who was the mother of Nero. Nero was the third emperor that Peter would have had. He was 54 to 68. Nero killed his own mother. Then he accused Christians of burning Rome, and then he put 800 Christians on stakes in his yard. He tarred them, he lit them on fire, and used them as his light for his evening's party. Vespasian would have been Peter's fourth emperor, 69 to 79, and Vespasian built the Colosseum. You probably know what happened to Christians there. Titus was Peter's fifth emperor. He was 79 to 81. He's the emperor who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and killed nearly half a million Jews in the siege. Domitian would have been Peter's fifth emperor. Domitian was 81 to 96. He forced people to refer to himself as Lord and God and worship him with divine honors. Most Christians would not call him Lord and God, so he murdered thousands and thousands of them. And Peter writes in verse 17, honor the emperor. R.C. Sproul writes to us today, if you don't like the president of the United States, remember the one who cast the deciding ballot in his election was almighty God. It may be that the president is completely ungodly, but for reasons known to God alone, God has placed him in that position of authority. So show your hope in God by shining in the darkness through joyful submission And that joyful submission is only possible if you know that your king does not live in a capital made by human hands and that your king will rule with righteousness and justice that no human governor will even come close to. Now, number four, letter D. What do we do when government gets it wrong? We obey God overall. We obey God overall. Now, the Bible tells us to do this many times. When Pharaoh and Herod commanded the murder of baby boys, both times that God's people disobeyed the human government, God commended them. Listen to Exodus 1. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, so God dealt well with the midwives, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God commended them for disobeying their human government. God told Joseph to disobey Herod. In the scriptures, we repeatedly read that when government tells us to disobey God, we obey God rather than men. Do you remember who said that in the Bible in Acts 5, 29? Peter. Peter said we must obey God rather than men. So when you read 1 Peter 2, remember what Peter said in Acts 5, 29. Daniel said in Daniel 3, verse 18, or sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, But if it not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, the reason I had 112 pages originally was because I chronicled specific ways that we must respectfully disobey government. I had to cut a lot of those out, but let me tell you one. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Attorney General of California has determined 17 states that you cannot fly to with government funding because those states are deemed by what I'll call the imperial regime of California (laughs) as unworthy. Now in the original list of states that were deemed unworthy is North Carolina. And I thought the timing of this was very providential because last weekend, Hunter's parents flew from California to North Carolina so that they could worship with us and rejoice in their son being ordained and recognized as a full-time pastor. Now, if the decision was mine 
and I worked for UCLA or for the United States Postal System or some other student athlete organization that forbade me flying across the country. For me, it's a no-brainer. I'm gonna obey God rather than men. So when government makes restrictions that restrict what God has told us to do, we obey God rather than men. There's many examples we could give over the last two years. But over the last two years, we've learned, hopefully clearly, that if we give up all the concessions of our higher obligation, we will lose them permanently. So I want you to hear from me as your pastor that by God's grace, I am resolved to obey God rather than men. Whatever our American governance does or doesn't do, whatever they declare legal or illegal, we have a highest authority. Let us obey him most. Letter E, we must be salt and life. We must be salt and light. You remember when Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but to God that which is God. He was saying that in a time where they had an emperor. But think about how that works in a democracy. We are virtually Caesar in our governmental system. So we must participate and be involved and be engaged citizens that can make our cities and communities and country with as much salt and light as possible. Letter F. Rejoice in your heavenly citizenship. Would you look up again in verse nine and let the word sink in when our culture crumbles. Remember, Christian, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our core identity is not political. It is priestly, chosen by God forever. So remember, when all the nations of this world crumble, Jesus will reign forever. And when this nation or any nation topples, Remember the verses we quote at Christmas, but maybe with a fresher application. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is called, Everlasting Father? It's simple. We talk about our national foundation as having founding fathers. Jesus is the founding father of the everlasting kingdom. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom over it. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. But now let me give us the core solution by quickly overviewing the final verses of 1 Peter 2. Look down in verse 19. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it if you endure then? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, and this is the key, entrusting himself to him 
who judges justly. What enables the believer to suffer unjustly? The fact that we know there is a judge who will judge justly. Now, let me ask you this morning, are you right with that judge? Because any approval you have in this world doesn't matter if you're not right with that judge. How can you be made right with that judge when you know you've done wrong? Look at the gospel in verse 24. Because Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you need to feel the rightness with your creator, realize that it's made possible because his son on the cross bore your sin in his body and he offers you a right relationship with God if you'll acknowledge your sin and trust in Christ so you no longer stray as sheep but now come to the true ruler, the bishop and overseer of your soul. Let me close in prayer this morning. Dear God, help us to bring glory to your name by willfully and joyfully submitting ourselves to God-ordained authority. May our general inclination be to respect and honor authority because we respect and honor God. And we understand that God has a purpose even for the wicked. But Lord, when the moments come, and they may come more and more in our lifetimes, where our governments attempt to coerce disobedience to God, then may we, like Peter said, obey God rather than men. Give us the courage to do so. Give us winsomeness when we need to do so. Lord, we understand that our country is experiencing some significant moral decay. But when we compare it to the first century and to the rest of the globe, we must remember to be very thankful for the many blessings we have. With that though, Lord, surely we pray for revival. And so we're reminded that Peter told us, whatever's going on in the world or in the human governments, our mission as the church has not changed. We're to speak the excellencies of him who has saved us, him who has borne our sin in his body. Perhaps even this morning, someone is realizing that they need to find a way to stand right before the one who judges justly. May they come to Jesus Christ for that forgiveness that he alone provides. May they experience the cleansing and the restored relationship with the true judge that can give them courage and hope beyond this world. Lord, remind us that you have put on the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the government that will never fail and will never falter. So Lord, when nations rise or nations fall or nations rage, we remember your anointed and we rejoice in him. Perhaps God, there's a specific area that you're speaking to us now. I pray in the moments that follow that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.